Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. You may be seated. So as we said last time, Leviticus 19 is written to the whole congregation of Israel. It includes ethical and moral rules that pertain to daily and weekly decisions and behaviors. Our obedience to them can make us more like God if it if it is, we are trying to imitate the one we love. So then, God begins by telling Moses to tell the congregation, every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. I know you're thinking we know that already. Move on. But it's curious uh, to many commentators why the fifth and fourth commands here are, are given at the beginning of this list of long, uh, long list of rules in, in, the, in the chapter. One thought was that the two commands are really the only positively stated commands in the Ten Commandments. The fourth and the fifth are the only positively stated commands. The other commands all come out negative. Thou shalt not use the Lord's name in vain. Negative, okay? It's from a negative perspective. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not covet, etc. Another observation is that these two commands are taken from each table of the law. What do I mean by table of the law? You know, they say that the first portion of the Ten Commandments, the first table has to do with our relationship to God, and the second table, verse uh, commands 5 through 10, have to do with our relationship to people. So here we have Sabbath keeping coming from the first table and honoring your parents coming from the second. But these two commands, they're out of order also. The fifth is mentioned before the fourth. I'm not sure we should read too much into that, but one person suggested that we come into the world, and what do we do? We look to our parents for training, for care, education, and the like, and and we grow and know that we should respect them. We do respect them. Somewhat. And they, in turn, will teach us the importance of respecting God, too. And an important, important way of teaching your children to respect God is weekly Sabbath-keeping. Because, after all, if Sabbath can be set aside at your whim 
then your children learn from you that God is not all that important or not nearly as important as we should think of Him. Dad and mom's insistence on church and rest on the Lord's Day teaches the kids, no matter what we do all week long, no matter what else takes place in my little life, I know that we go to worship the one we cannot see on Sunday. And we stop working as we would take, take on the work during the rest of the week. So this idea of revering mom and dad, which we naturally begin to do, it comes first, and then revering God in Sabbath keeping, it comes second, according to that commentator, hence the flipping. Now, that arrangement of the order also might be a reflection of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, right? God created Adam and Eve, and on the sixth day, he created them, and he created and defined a marriage, and therefore a family. That all took place on the sixth day. Then after marriage and family were created, the seventh day comes. Rest from all your work and worship of the Lord. So first you have the covenantal family, then you have the Sabbath. Okay. I'm moving on. I want to look more closely just at the first part of verse 3. It says, every one of you shall revere his mother and father. That's different than we normally hear it. Every one of you shall revere his mother and father. Normally, according to the Ten Commandments uh, uh, from the mountain, Exodus twenty twelve, it says, honor your father and your mother. Father comes before mother. Here for some reason, same with Deuteronomy's uh, Ten Commandments, here for some reason... It says you shall revere, he shall revere his mother and father. Why is that? Does it even matter? I don't know. But when I hear the fifth commandment, I do know this. I tend to think of younger children, all those children that were seated up front and some of those children that are still in your home that haven't left the home yet. When I think about honoring your father and mother, I think of them. I don't think of most of us that way. Yet I'm 59 years old, and I'm still a child of my mother. And this command should be thought a wonderful turn, opportunity for me to revere her. And I think we get a feel for this, mother coming first before father, because Leviticus was written, all right, during that period of wilderness wandering. It was after God refused them to go into the promised land and they were stuck in the wilderness waiting. Waiting for what? Waiting for dad and mom to die because they blew it. Moses told the people, Moses told the people, Leviticus 19, adults are being told. He's talking to adults, men, their children listening on as well, likely. He's telling these adults that they must revere their mothers and fathers. 
It's their grand opportunity to demonstrate reverence while their folks are still alive. In their old and aging days as well as right up to the threshold of death. If you think about it, this is probably at the forefront of the younger generation's mind. They're going to die out here. They're not going into the promised land. That was official. For most of us, it's not so impending with our folks. But we, we must consider how to revere our parents and not go off, not go off and fully invest in our lives and leave them behind. Why was the mother listed before the father in the text? Probably, according to John Hartley, a commentator, probably because he read a lot of the Middle Eastern documents, you had a situation where uh, dad, the patriarch often, would be leaving behind his estate. He was going to stop managing it because he'd been managing it most of his life. The kids were grown and he's going to leave it to his son or, or to his children and it was very likely that dad was going to die before mom. And so this first position of the, the mother and the father was probably because it weighed heavy on a man to make sure that his wife was cared for. And it weighs heavy upon the Lord as well that we revere mother and father. Caring for our mothers and fathers should be considered God's grace to you and me to be able to repay them and become more mature, more like God. See, we get this idea, and it's, it's not a good idea, that life is what I'm making it. I'm going to build myself something special. I'm going to go out. I'm going to get to a place in life I can retire and do what I want to do. Go places. Do things. Own things. And yet, we're a vapor. Do, you, do we really think that God wants us to have that self-motivation? Especially when his purpose for us that we become more like him often involves duty and trials and long-suffering and repayment. J.H. Hertz says this, neglect of filial duty, neglect of filial duty, family duty, right? Neglect of filial duty impairs a man's whole attitude to life and places the ideal of holiness out of his reach. You're not going to become holy if life is all about you and mom and dad are kind of left in the dust. 
Jesus saw how the Pharisees and scribes did not have God on their minds at all because of how they treated their parents. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. That's what the Pharisees and scribes said. Well, I'm doing this for God. I'm sorry, Mom, Dad. Jesus said, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God? You hypocrites. How about this? If you feel spiritually inadequate and you're in a bit of a Christian stupor, a bit of a funk, why not check on your parents to see how they are doing and if they need anything? Look for ways you can revere them. It will be a good step toward God, really. And I know, I know how some of you will find it difficult to reach out to parents who have often disappointed and even mistreated you. We've all got a little bit of that. You wonder, yeah, if I try reaching out and, and reverencing my mom and dad, can I trust myself to them? Am I just going to be hurt again? Well, maybe you can't trust them so much yet, but you can entrust yourself to God and take just those smaller, timid steps. Make God your goal. Moses then concludes that sentence saying, you must keep my Sabbaths. The Sabbath is always good for man. It was made for us. The Sabbaths in the plural here is a bit of a question, like more than one, does it mean more than one? We just sang a song, first song we sang talked about keeping the Sabbaths, plural, meaning many. Or it could be referring to Sabbaths, like your your weekly Sabbath, and then the, the Jews were also supposed to keep a Sabbath every seventh year, was a year of rest for the land, etc., and then Seven sevens of years came the jubilee where all the people in the land, the animals, got rest. I'm not going to expound these here, but I will say that the weekly Sabbath was established in Genesis in the beginning, before the Israelites even came around. No man animal, land, etc., will benefit by refusing to keep it. And that's because God the Lord is God the Creator, and He set aside the seventh day. Now, if some of that seemed uh, repeat, I've watched that sitcom before, I'm kind of tired of it, 
gather around. In verse 4, it says, do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. The the Hebrew word for idols here um, is meant to disparage them. It's like a condescending word. Condescending, disparaging the heathen gods for for their powerlessness, their weakness, their inefficacy. Gordon Wenham says the word derived from its Semitic root translates as weakling. Do not turn to weaklings. Or as other, others have said, the word idols here translates as nothings. Nothings. Like saying, do not turn to your nothings. And that would go along with the Apostle Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 8. We know that an idol has no real existence, Paul says, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And this triune God is the one God that you would be turning from in order to turn to idols. It says there, do not turn to idols. So the command not to turn to idols and make for yourself gods was a command aimed at the heart of the congregant. Because to turn to the idol meant that you wanted to turn away from the one who is. As I discussed in the children's sermon, you wanted to turn away from the one who is. something to something that is nothing. Someone to this weak thing. That's nuts. That's really stupid. Who in their right mind? (laughs) No one. And yet, most people are this way. Men made idols by cutting and chiseling out of wood or stone. That was considered a hewn idol, hewn. Whereas gods made of cast metal were made of gold or silver, melted and poured over some shaped figure or poured into a mold. That's what is brought up next. Or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. That's what cast metal is, a pouring into a mold or pouring over. The significance of God mentioning gods of cast metal could be because it pointed right back to their past. Remember what your fathers did. It's recorded in Exodus 32. I'll just read four verses. And Moses said to Aaron... And these verses are excellent. 
We're getting at the heart of idolatry. And Moses said to Aaron, why did this people do to you what you have? And Moses said to Aaron, why did this people do to you? What? Sorry. What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord, meaning Moses, burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. So Leviticus 19.4 is God saying, do not make a nothing God. I am the Lord, your God. What gets into the mind of men to want something other than God? Turning to idols and the making of nothing gods and away from the Lord God is foolhardy. You must really want to keep something badly. Listen. You must really want to keep something badly to trade in someone who is for a make-believe nothing God. Aaron told Moses, you know the people that, that they are set on evil. That's the motivator. People will forfeit God if they get to keep the sin that is going on inside of themselves. But as S.R. Hirsch explains, man is not to imagine God out of himself. Man is not to imagine God out of himself into an idol, right? but to conceive and mold himself out of God. But to conceive and mold himself out of God. Be imitators of God. He made us to image him. So Moses tells them what God says, don't do it. Do not turn from me to idols and make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. I love you and know you are not so righteous, so I will not refrain from reminding you. I would say this, congregant. Don't think you're above protecting your sin and wanting another God. Don't think you're above that. Be circumspect, okay? Cautious, on the alert. Know thyself enough that you will not be, that you will not be self-confident. The heart is deceptive. A man, this is a true story, more than once, A man can give himself to sin and misdeeds. And he can get down on himself because of it. 
and become dejected and feel like he is a slave to sin. And it can get to the point he becomes unsure of his salvation, even further to the point where he gets hard in his heart, even disbelieving in God at all. He can doubt the existence. Why? Because of his failures, because of his guilt. He may may no longer want the Lord to exist. Then, God graciously picks him up, brushes him off. He repents. He obeys. His heart is glad again. Instead of the dead look in his eyes, he smiles again. But, self-confidence creeps in. Two or three years later, there he goes getting ahead of himself. His dire, his dire dependence of, on God is not so dependent anymore. Now humility is replaced by self-righteousness. He thinks he's the guy with all the answers. He has no patience and begins condemning his fellow Christians for compromising and being pathetic disobeyers of the Lord. Beware, brother. Beware, sister. Keep your eyes to the ground and on the dirt from which God made you. Do not turn to idols and make for yourself a nothing God. The warning for the children of Israel is not to make gods out of cast metal. Yesterday, your fathers piled their gold up for Aaron to fashion a golden calf. God says, I do not want you to do this. I will not have it. Hirsch Hirsch writes, cast idols, okay, and this this is the warning. Cast idols are figures which at any desired moment, at any desired moment, can be remolded to any shape or form. So the children, or you, sinner, can leave the one idol, repent and do well. But if you go back to that ingot of gold or whatever, you're bound to heat it and reshape it again if you become too self-confident. Verse 5 through 8 says, When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it, or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. This is the peace offering of free will. There were like three types of peace offerings. This is the peace offering of free will. You didn't have to do it, right? It's described in Leviticus 3. It's described in Leviticus 7, verses 11 through 36. It was a sacrifice that was kind of different because it was turned into a meal. 
the meat could be eaten. It was shared with the Lord. It was shared with the priests. And then you got to take some home and eat it with your family and friends. A wonderful sacrifice. The worshiper, he brought a male or female ox and sheep or goat, and he slaughtered it. Remember, the, the worshipers actually did the work of slaughtering the animals. It wasn't the priests, it was the worshiper. The ritual itself, this peace offering, it resembled the burnt offering all the way up to the point of the actual burning of the animal's flesh. You didn't burn the flesh here. It was not offered to the Lord. You only burnt up the fat and the kidneys and the liver. And the blood was still poured out around the edges of the altar. With the peace offering, the remaining flesh of the animal was to be eaten by the priests and by the worshipers. It was a great time. It was a good thing. But the rule was, do not eat the meat after the second day, into the third. And that's been reemphasized here in Leviticus 19, 5 through 8. And and yeah, we don't offer sacrifices. Why am I spending time on this little passage? Because there's a principle here we can't neglect. This is a rule that keeps on giving, all right? We don't slaughter animals for sacrifices of peace. But the principle is this. You can screw up a good thing. You can screw up a good thing by replacing what God wants for what you want. Okay, maybe a good thing. Maybe the way you screw it up is you make that good thing that you're trying to do for the Lord about you instead of about him. When you make it about you instead of about him, it turns holiness, or what should lead to holiness, into sinfulness. Consider, God was very pleased when someone committed an animal for a free will peace offering. It was a good thing. They slaughtered the animal, committed its blood in certain parts, and then the meal celebrations followed. But if they ate that meat on that third day, it nullified the whole thing. It nullified the whole offering from start to finish. It counted against them. None of it counts now. It hurts them, in fact. Why? It's because the worshiper took what had started for God and made it about himself. I want to eat the meat. I don't want it to go to waste. Whatever his purposes were, he made it about himself. It's as if the offerer pulled the sacrifice from off of the altar and out of the mouths of the priests when he ate it on the third day, whereas he should have burnt it up. John Hartley, commentator, says, such an act destroys the benefits of the sacrificial offering 
by making it no longer acceptable. This is important. We can still break this rule today. It is the Ananias and Sapphira dilemma. Do you remember them in Acts 5? The Christians are selling their property, okay? And they're bringing the proceeds from the sale and putting it at the apostles' feet, and they're caring for this young, budding Christian community with these um, sales. It was all free will offering. They didn't have to do it, so it happens. Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife, okay? Sometimes husbands and wives, they have their little secrets against God. So be it. It's not good. But they sold their property too. Hallelujah. But they kept this little secret between themselves. And they lied to the apostles and acted like they were donating the entire sale amount to the church. They weren't. They had kept back a portion for themselves. What, what did they do? Though? They posed. They posed as if they gave it all. They could have done whatever they wanted to with the property and proceeds. They were told that. It belonged to them. They didn't have to bring the whole amount. They could have just brought a half of it and said, here, we're just giving you half. Okay, wow, thanks for the generous offering. So what had started out a good thing for God by this couple went sideways when he made it about themselves. They screwed up the whole offering. Jesus speaks to this principle of making it about you in Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4. Anybody have an idea where I'm going with this? Right. What Jesus said. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your hand... Your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. It's good to practice righteousness. But if you do it to be seen by men, you've just tossed it away in God's eyes. Do not do acts of righteousness and make it about you. Make them about God. Otherwise, you really blow it for yourself. And he's against that. Don't allow something that starts on a good leg with godly substance dissolve. I think this is the root of the Sunday-only Christian. The ornery son of a you-know-what who's a hardened businessman who smiles all teeth on Sunday, but then is very, very despicable sinner that no one really wants to deal with all week long. No, getting in the way of something good does not make you holy. 
as the Lord your God is holy. Finally, Jacob Milgram. Jacob Milgram teaches holiness implies abstentions, he says. Holiness implies abstentions. In other words, withholding yourself. To be holy, it means you're going to withhold yourself, even within the performance of a positive act. Okay? You do a positive act, keep yourself in the background. Holiness implies abstentions. I think he means it's, it's good to do acts of righteousness. Just be sure to keep a rein on your tongue, a monitor on your heart, and measure your steps so that you gain the benefit of godliness instead of losing it. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you uh, use these words and the thoughts shared here and the scripture text itself and apply it to us. And if we, um, I guess, did not track with it all, that we'd take the time and go back and listen to it. We pray this in Jesus' name.